You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Also, and beside you, the title of my sermon tonight, The Trial of Unbelief. The Trial of Unbelief. Last week in our study of the Gospel of John, we looked at the nature of unbelief. We saw how, contextually speaking, the Apostle John is contrasting the belief, the sincere faith of the Samaritans with the shallow, superficial faith of the Galileans. Remember what we said last week, the people of Galilee, Jesus' home region, had seen the miracles he performed in Jerusalem during the Passover. And though they believed that he was a miracle worker able to heal and cast out demons, even even turn water into wine in, in Cana, they didn't recognize him as the Messiah. John even says back in chapter 2, verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man For he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew the unbelief, the lack of real and sincere faith in the hearts of those who witnessed the miracles in Jerusalem. And that's a distinction that is being made here. The Samaritans believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Even from their own words in verse 42 of chapter 4. They say that he is the savior of the world. That's all from the testimony of the Samaritan woman. There is no record of a sign or a miracle being performed in Samaria. They all just believe Jesus' word. Meanwhile, the people of Galilee saw the miracles firsthand. And yet in verse 44, it says, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet had no honor in his own hometown. Meaning his own village, his own people, where he grew up in, would not honor his teachings, would not believe his testimony as the Son of God, as the Messiah. We even read again in Luke chapter 4 how Jesus is almost thrown off a cliff in Nazareth as a result of his testimony, as a result of the people's unbelief. And so John is really trying to clarify to his readers how true and real and sincere faith looks like versus insincere, shallow unbelief looks like. Because remember what the the thesis of the Gospel of John is. John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John is writing this Gospel with an evangelistic purpose in mind so that those who are reading it could and would come to truly believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah. And so John wants to make sure that we understand how unbelief looks like and real faith looks like and how, and how, how, it doesn't always, how unbelief doesn't always manifest itself as this boisterous opposition towards the gospel, but that it can simply be a, a shallow, superficial, dependent on miracles kind of faith, the kind of faith that Christ rebukes in our passage. And we'll see this issue addressed time and time again throughout the Gospel of John. People believing in Christ, following Christ, only because of his miracles, the good things he did, the good things he taught, not because of who he said he was, not because they believed what he said about himself, about him being the Messiah, the Son of God. 
That's what the Apostle John is cutting through here as, and as we get to our passage. What the, what the Apostle is distinguishing and separating in this story with this official and his dying son. If the passage that we looked at last week, verse 43 and 45, is the setup or the commentary of this distinction between real faith and unbelief, then this following encounter of, with this official and, and, and the son that needs to be healed is, is to verify this unbelief. It's, to, it's to, to verify Jesus' own testimony about how no one will honor him in his own town. Again, Jesus said, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And here is the proof. Here's, what's, here's what happened when he went back to Galilee. Now, what I love about this passage that we have this evening is that it's not, it not only gives us an example of the unbelief that Jesus is working against, that John is writing against or testifying about, but it also shows how Jesus confronts that kind of unbelief and, and how he, and not just confronts it, but how he actually conquers this unbelief. In fact, so much so that the official and his entire household ends up believing unto Christ for salvation at the end. As we'll see, the official goes from this superficial faith to the, the type of unbelief that is dependent on, on signs and wonders and miracles and getting something from Jesus to a, a faith that is genuinely, uh, that genuinely trusts in the, the, the words of the Savior, that obeys and follows. And what we'll see tonight, church, is the trial of unbelief, the struggle that this father had to go through in order that his faith might be refined by the Savior, the test of faith that he had to wrestle with in order to manifest the, the real fruit of sincere faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe, church, this sermon is for all of us here tonight because all of us, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, will go through some sort of trial. Some faith trial, a trial of unbelief, a trial that determines whether or not we are truly a follower of Christ or someone who's just here for the show, someone who's just here to see the wonders and the signs, whether there some, we'll, we'll, all of us will go through it, maybe some of us are already, already in it, a, a trial of faith where, where our faith will be shown to be sincere or insincere. And this is what we get from our, church, uh, from our passage tonight. My hope, church, is that we would respond in similar fashion as this official, this dad in, in our own trials, that though we may initially come with a similar unbelief or doubts, and that in the hands of the Savior, it would be shaped into a faith that endures, a faith that obeys, even when all seems lost and hopeless. My hope, church, is that if you are going through a similar trial in your life right now, where the temptation to doubt or, or respond in unbelief is present, that similar to this father, this official, you would come to a place of sincere faith in, in not just what Jesus can do for you, but who he is in the midst of your trials. My hope, church, is that in the trials of your life, you would respond with sincere faith and not unbelief, as we'll see in our passage. So let's get into it. Let's see this in our passage. Everyone, let's see it. Say it. Let's start from the top again. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his home, hometown. 
In case you were wondering, because I know that you are all lovers of God's word and eager students of scripture, whenever you see a parenthesis in the text, especially in the ESV, that's an editor's note. John didn't include parentheses in the original text, just for your information. The Bible translators simply didn't know how to, what to make of the sentence or how it fits into the other parts of this passage. And so they presented with parentheses. For example, our passage, verse 43 and 44, after the two days he departed for Galilee, parentheses, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. That doesn't really make sense if you think about it. Jesus goes to Galilee, even though he just said that they won't honor him. But how does that make, you know, how does that fit in this passage? So in order to just be faithful to the text, they include it, but they put parentheses because they don't know what the connecting word should be or, or what the original text should say. Yet as we mentioned last week, it makes perfect sense, right? Jesus went to Galilee despite knowing that they would reject him. He went to share the gospel to his own people despite knowing that they would not believe him. Again, that's an example for us for us to go and share the gospel as well to the lost despite knowing that there are there will be times where people reject us, where there will be times where people d- deny the truth and 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 rejection should not be a hesitant uh, a point of hesitancy for us when it comes to evangelism, because it wasn't for our Savior. The the love he had for the people, the the desire to show mercy and grace to the people superseded this thought of rejection or this fear of rejection uh, from the people. So verse 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. As we mentioned even earlier, this was a superficial welcoming. They welcomed the miracles but they didn't welcome him as the Messiah. Verse 46, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. John is reminding us of Jesus' first public miracle to tell us that he had already had, that he already had this reputation in the, place, in the town of Cana. Word of what he did at the wedding and, and the miracles he performed in Jerusalem had begun to spread like wildfire throughout the region. In fact, so much so that it even reached this official in Capernaum. It says at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. Now Capernaum was 16 miles or 25 kilometers northeast of Cana, somewhere Jesus had yet to visit. But his influence had grown so much that even this official had heard about him. The word for official in the original Greek is basilikos, meaning a royal official, someone connected to the king. So this official was probably a royal servant or minister to King Herod Antipas, the the tetrarch of Galilee, the same king who sends John the Baptist to be beheaded and who, who has Jesus beaten and mocked with a purple robe during the crucifixion. It's probably even from this testimony of this official that Herod first hears about Jesus. But regardless, Jesus' popularity has grown so much that even this nobleman, the the Jewish aristocracy and courts have heard about him now, knew about his miracles. And we see the result of this, verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, when he found out that Jesus was in town, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This is the situation. 
The royal official hears that Jesus is in town, his son is dying, so he makes that 60-mile, the 25-kilometer journey down to Cana just to ask Jesus to come back with him to Capernaum and heal his dying son. Now, you might be thinking, well, this sounds like, a, this, sounds like this guy has good faith, right? Like real faith. I mean, he traveled miles just to see Jesus, just to ask Jesus for help. What, what's wrong with that? How is this story about unbelief? Well, let me ask you, do you think every desperate plea of help to God is received or is coming from a, a genuine heart or a sincere faith? Do you think every desperate plea and want and need that people cry out to God is coming from a, a heart that truly and sincerely has faith in God. I mean, even people who never identify as Christians or are followers of Christ in their most desperate situation will call out to God for help, will even bargain with God for help, right? I mean, if you've ever taken an exam at school or something, you know what I'm talking about. It's like 10 minutes before the exam, everybody's a Christian, Lord, help me with this exam, and I promise I'm going to church. Or, God, help me with this, 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 this job or this work situation, and, and I promise I'll, I'll, I'll give to the poor. Or I'll, I'll, I'll stop doing this thing. But do you think that's a sincere kind of faith? When someone gets caught for committing a crime, and they cry out to God, asking that he doesn't get sent to prison, is that sincere? When someone wants something so bad and they've exhausted all avenues and when they're at the end of their robe, they, they turn to God as their last resort, is that sincere faith? Listen, people come to God all the time when they need something, but a person's necessity doesn't always denote sincerity. And we see this even in the church. Oftentimes, God is presented as this cosmic vending machine. And all you have to do is ask and name it. And God will give it to you. And God is treated like this thing that you only go to when you, when, when you want something or you need something. Or when you need a little confidence boost or a power trip. Or when all is lost and you're in your most desperate situation, that's when you come to God. That's when we turn to God because he can supply our every need and he can conquer our giants in our lives, right? Let me tell you, a faith born from emergency doesn't produce much sincerity. A faith born from, much, from emergency doesn't produce much sincerity. In my short time as a pastor, I've seen this time and time again. People come to me during a breakup. Their boyfriend dumped them, their girlfriend dumped them. And I tell them how God wants a relationship with them. And at that moment, they give, they give their lives to Christ. And they get all happy. But once they get over their breakup, they also get over Jesus. A faith born from emergency doesn't produce much sincerity. And Jesus calls out this kind of faith. He says in verse 48, Jesus said to them, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Unless you get something in return, you won't believe. Unless you get what you want, you won't believe. Unless you get what you need and when you need it, you won't believe. Unless you see great demonstrations of power and authority and blessings and success, you will not believe. That is insincere faith. Sincere faith says, our God can deliver us from this furnace, but even if he doesn't, we will not worship anyone else. Sincere faith says, either way, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Sincere faith says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. You see the difference? Real faith believes in the power of God despite not seeing the evidence of it. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Not by evidence of what we see or experience, not by signs or wonders or displays of power or getting what we want. We walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus knew exactly what kind of faith this official had, and not just the official, by the way, everybody who was in this scene. Notice how he uses the plural, you. He says, unless you all see signs, unless y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Again, the people of Galilee received his miracles. They knew that he was a miracle worker. Miracle of miracles, right? We're just saying about it. But that's as far as their faith went. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah because believing that, believing that he was truly the Messiah, the anointed one of God, meant that they would need to submit to him, meant that they needed to swear allegiance to him, call him Lord, meant that they needed to crown him as king over their lives. It's okay to receive the miracles, but to receive him as Messiah, king over their lives, it's a whole other story. And listen, that's the unfortunate reality of many churches and, and Christians today. Many come to church thinking that Jesus is this great moral teacher that we can learn from, that, who did a bunch of good things, someone who can grant us whatever requests we make or give us power and authority and blessing and success, but that's as far as their faith goes. Christ has yet to be declared Lord over their lives. This was the case for the Galileans and the official, and Jesus calls, out, calls them out on this, on their unbelief. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Let's change perspective a little here. Imagine for a moment that you were this official, this father whose son is sick and dying. Imagine that you have tried everything. Your connection is in the palace all the doctors, all the medicines, and still your son is sick and at death's door. Then you hear about this miracle worker, this Jesus of Nazareth who healed people in Jerusalem, who cast out demons, even turned water into wine, and, and good news, he's in town. So you travel miles as fast as you can to meet this miracle worker because your son could die at any moment now, and when you ask him in desperation to come down and heal your son, he says, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Is it now a little cold? Wait, what? Is this the same Jesus that we're talking about here? If I was the father, if this was my son, if this was Judah, I would be like, what do you mean? I came all the way here to ask you for help, to heal my dying son, and you're questioning my faith? My son is dying and you're teaching an object lesson on unbelief. What is going on here? By the way, just as a show of hands, who here was expecting that Jesus would maybe show more grace and mercy and compassion to this guy? Or that Jesus would maybe show some sense of urgency at this man's request. Your son's dying? Okay, let's get going. But he doesn't, does he? This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild, or the lovey-dovey Jesus that is portrayed in popular culture. This is the God who is not mocked. 
and looks at the sincerity of the heart. The God who looks for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. This is the God who separates the goats from the sheep, the chaff from the wheat. Jesus, Jesus counters the official's desperate plea with a rebuke. And listen, it's not without purpose, and, and definitely it doesn't, it's not without compassion either. No, I think it was to test this man's faith. I think Jesus rebukes this man to, to bring him to a place where he has to decide, is Jesus just another avenue in which he's going to try? Or is he truly the only source that he can go to, the only person that he can depend on to heal his son? I believe this is what is known as the test in unbelief. The test in unbelief. Jesus tests the heart in order to draw out sincere faith. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture, in Matthew chapter 15, when a Canaanite a woman comes to Jesus with a desperate plea of, of relieving her daughter from this demon possession. Jesus tells her in Matthew 15, verse 26, he answered her, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Where's the compassion, right? Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds really harsh to me. Jesus refuses her request and sounds very callous in doing it. And, and, then, and then look what happens, though. Verse 27, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. She passed the test. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Similarly to this, to this woman, Jesus confronts this royal official with a test of faith. What will you do if you don't get what you want? What will you do if Jesus doesn't behave the way that you want him to when you want him to? Will you still have faith? Listen, there are times in our lives where our faith will be put to the test, where the question will be asked, is our faith real? And understand, brothers and sisters, our response will reveal the sincerity of our faith. If the gospel has genuinely taken root in our hearts. Remember the parable of the sower and the seeds. Some seeds fell on the roadside, some seeds fell on thorns and some rocky ground, some seeds fell on, on good soil. Remember what Jesus said about the ones that fell on the rocks, Luke chapter 8, verse 13. And the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing, fall away. That's what this test is for. To see if the gospel was truly taken, has truly taken roots. To see how far your faith actually goes. And beloved, maybe you're in a season right now where God is testing your faith. Maybe it's about a job or a family situation or a health concern. And God is not responding the way that you want him to or expect him, expect him to respond. Despite your desperate pleas, despite how many tears you cry or how broken your heart is about the situation, it still feels that God is cold and uncaring and distant. But listen, this is the test of unbelief. Either Jesus is Lord only when you get what you want, or Jesus is Lord even if you don't get what you want. What will your answer be? We see the official's answer in our passage, verse 49. 
The official, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He sticks it through. He stands his ground. He doesn't leave. He doesn't even say a word about how callous Jesus sounded. He, doesn't, he, he, he just continues to plead with Christ all the more to heal his dying son. He, he doesn't turn away. He doesn't go seeking for help elsewhere or, or taking things into his own hands. He, he sticks it out with Christ. Now you might be thinking, yes, this is it. This is the real faith that we we're talking about. This is where it comes in. This is... This is, this is no longer unbelief. This is now a believer. Yes! This is what we're talking about. Amen. Let's close. Worship team, come on up. Wow, no one came up. That's... Nope, not yet. That faith doesn't come in yet. Again, I think any desperate father who's at the end of their rope would stick around. Once your, all your resources, all, all, your, all your connections have been dried up, I think anyone would stick around. This guy wasn't converted yet. The test wasn't over. There's a part B to the sheet. Got to flip it over. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. Anyone see how difficult this command is? The point of this father coming from Capernaum to Cana was to bring Jesus back to Capernaum. The point was to bring Jesus back so that he could put his hands on his son or something or, or say a prayer or say a magical word or, or something just to heal his son. But all Jesus says is, go back home. He's not even coming back with him. Can you imagine the heart of this father? Again, if, if, if I was this is that I would be so frustrated, so discouraged. I tra- traveled all this way to, to my last hope, knowing that at any minute my son would die, even risking not being by his side. And I'm told to just go back home. Without any proof that my son will live, without any medicine for his health, or, or hope that he would be healed, just go back home. And the only thing I'm supposed to take is the word of this miracle worker. I'm supposed to just trust him and take this Jesus' word that my son will live? Listen, in every trial, in every trial of faith, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Because that's what faith is. It's trust in the unseen, not what is seen. It's walking without knowing where your foot is going to land, but trusting in who it is that provides the ground that you walk in. This is the trust in unbelief. The trust in unbelief. Look what it says, verse 50. Jesus says to him, "Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man could have argued, you have to come with me. You have, to, you, put, you have to come and pray for him. The man could have asked for proof, evidence, that he wasn't just wasting his time, that his son wasn't going to die. The man could have raised his voice, shook a fist, walked out in anger. But instead, he took Jesus' words and believed. This is where real faith begins. When we take Jesus at his word, when we re- 
realize who it is that is speaking to us, that is calling, that is beckoning us to have faith, to have trust in him. See, somewhere in between Jesus' command to go back home and his father's obedience, something clicked. Maybe it was, it was a glance into the Savior's eyes. Maybe it was a realization of the authority that Jesus had over death and life and sickness. Maybe it was simply a father who was at the end of his rope and all he could do is entrust himself to the only one that could help him now. Regardless, at that moment, he trusted Jesus at his word and went on his way. That's faith. Nothing to go on, no evidence. Beloved, sometimes all we have in the midst of our trials is simply the words of our Savior. Simply that he will never leave us or forsake us or that his grace is sufficient for us, or that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, or that he will provide a way to endure, or that he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. Sometimes all we have in the midst of our trials is the word of God. And listen, that should be enough. Because the reality is, this is not the words of some wishy-washy, inconsistent, unreliable, always changing person that is calling us to trust in him. No, this is the word of God who spoke the universe into existence and it was so. This is the one who comes riding on a white horse and is called faithful and true. This is the words of the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness of God, Jesus Christ. His words should be enough. There's no one else more trustworthy in this life than Jesus Christ. Even when reality contradicts what he says, even when everything, when everything logically points to the other direction, even if all the evidence says that my son will die if Jesus doesn't come back with me, his word should be enough, is enough. That's what real and sincere faith is. One that is not dependent on any sign or miracle or wonder, yet wholly trusts in the word of Christ anyways. Paul, when discussing sincere faith, recalls the faith of Abraham, who put his hope in God's promise, despite what, what was in his surroundings, despite his circumstance. It says in Romans chapter 4, verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that God was able to keep his word. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. That's real faith. Though the father was making his way back home, the reality is he was taking a step towards Christ. And we see the fruit of the single step of faith. Verse 51. 
As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, around 1 p.m., the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Church, when we trust in Christ, when we walk by faith and not by sight, we get to see the triumph in unbelief. The triumph in unbelief. Notice that Christ accomplishes more than what the Father had desperately asked him for or what he, was, what he himself was expecting. He was asking that his son would be healed, saved, saved from death, that Jesus would come down to Capernaum himself and heal his son. Instead, his father gets to witness this marvelous display of power and authority over time and space and sickness and even death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. Not only is his son saved from death, but this man's entire household believes in Christ unto salvation. This was no longer a, a faith dependent on signs and wonders and miracles, but wholly dependent on who they knew Jesus to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, who has authority and power over life and death and sickness. Listen, if Jesus had just done what the Father asked him, what would he have accomplished? The boy not dying of sickness at that moment, but dying at a later time only to experience the wrath of God. Instead, Jesus exceeds the expectation of the father and not only saves his son from sickness, but saves the entire household from hell. This is the triumph in unbelief. The experience of salvation, not just from our trials in this life, but from sin and death and the wrath of God. Listen, whatever trial that you are going through in this life, whatever testing of faith or that you are going through or, or will go through, understand that God wants you to reap from it far more than what you are asking him to do. Understand that when God sanctifies us through these trials, when he tests our faith, it's to produce more than just relief or a temporary, or a temporary fix. God is looking towards eternity. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 67 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is not after your comfort. He wants to produce in you a character. God doesn't want to give you temporal relief. He wants you to experience eternal redemption. God doesn't want you to have a shallow faith. He wants to produce in you a sincere faith, more precious than gold. That is the triumph in unbelief. That in the hands of the Savior, our most desperate trial can become a display of triumph. Church, that's who we are called to trust in. The God who is able to do far more abundantly abundantly than what we ask him to or even think. That's the kind of faith God wants to produce in us through the trials of faith, the trials of unbelief, the 
It's the kind of glory, the kind of triumph that God wants to reap from our lives through those trials. It's the sentiment of Paul. When Christ brings him to a place where after praying three times that the thorn in his side would be removed, Paul can boast and say, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the triumph in unbelief. Again, church, maybe you yourself is going through a trial right now. And your faith is being laid bare. It's being put to the test. And maybe it's not a one incident, maybe it's a month's worth, or maybe it's an entire season of testing. No matter what you pray, and no matter how often you cry out, it seems like God doesn't care, or He's cold. First of all, God does care. God cares about the circumstances in your life. First Peter says, you cast out all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And in this trial that, that you're experiencing right now, you have the option to either flee in fear, to doubt, to question, to be angry, or even if you have no evidence of what God is doing or you cannot comprehend God's purposes in your trial, you have the option to trust, to believe, to have faith. The invitation is to trust. Not in the miracles not in the things that God can do for you, but in God himself. The invitation is to settle in your hearts. Is Christ really the Messiah? The Savior of the world? The only one that can satisfy your need? The only one that you can turn to for comfort and help and eternal life? Is he truly Lord over your life? Don't settle for shallow faith. Don't settle for unbelief. Wrestle with it. Fight with it. Even if it's hard and difficult, throw yourselves at the mercies of a holy God, of a caring and loving God, who again desires not just to relieve you of whatever trial that you're experiencing, but to bring much glory and bring you much triumph, even more than what you ask for and what you can think. Trust in Jesus. He's the only one who can do far more than what we ask for. He is faithful and true. He cares. Trust him when dark doubts assail thee. Trust him when thy strength is small. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. Trust him, he is ever faithful. 
Trust him for his will is best. Trust him for the heart of Jesus is the only place for rest. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, you know the trials that we are experiencing, the testing of our faith, the refining of our faith. And God, in all honesty, there are times, God, where we, we don't understand, we cannot comprehend what you are doing And there are times where it's so hard, so difficult to believe, to have faith. God, even in our unbelief, we throw ourselves at your mercies. God, despite the questions, the fears, maybe even the bitterness that has developed in our hearts, Help us, O Lord, to trust in you, to take you for your word, to believe and know that you are faithful and true. God, you know the hearts in this room that is struggling with unbelief, the experience that they have gone through, feeling of loneliness or the feeling of abandonment or feeling like they're lost in the midst of all these things that is testing their faith not knowing what to do I pray oh God that at this sacred moment that Holy Spirit you would come and let them experience your love your comfort your hope remind them Holy Spirit that you are a God that cares. That you care so much about them that you sent your son to die on the cross. That they would be reconciled unto you. That they might have eternal life with you. Satisfaction and joy in you. So God, once again, we come to your throne and we ask that you would help our unbelief. And whatever doubts and fears and uncertainty that we are wrestling with, that we would cast them all at your feet. That we would truly trust in your name, in your word, in your promises for your saints. Oh God, help us in this. Our hearts are prone to wander. Prone to leave the God that we love. I pray that you would anchor us by your grace, by the cross of Jesus Christ. That you would take every thought captive. That you renew every mind and every heart. That we would truly walk by faith and not by sight. We pray these things in your glorious name, Jesus Christ.
Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.